Good morning. <clears throat> well, we are continuing through our study of uh, Christian char- or character studies, and uh, we are in uh, the book of Acts. We're looking at uh, Stephen the martyr this morning. But uh, before you turn to the book of Acts, I'd like you to turn to the book of Romans. As I thought about Stephen and what part of his character I would like to emphasize, I kept returning to a single verse of Scripture. Um, It really speaks more about the character of God than it does about the character of Stephen. But this single verse applies to Stephen in a very significant way, and it also applies to us. And it's found in Romans 8. Most of you probably have it memorized, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. I want to take a look at Romans 8 um, for a couple of minutes. But like many of you, we have faced uh, some, what seems to us at least, significant trials in our life from time to time. In this uh, body of believers, uh, many of you have faced uh, trials, difficulties, uh, trials of sickness. I remember just uh, about a week ago, uh, a friend of Dorothy's met with me. And uh, he said to me, he says, how's Dorothy doing? And I explained to him how she was physically, and that's really not what he was asking about. He's not a believer. And he says, you know, she is a woman who really must have faith in God after what she's been through. And I thought, well, that's great that he sees that uh, in her. And many of us have faced uh, trials of sickness, some very serious. Some have experienced personal loss the loss of loved ones, the loss of employment, the loss of business, loss of uh, children, wayward children, loss of financial security, loss of home, loss of uh, apartment, as Joanne is facing this week. You know, I have to admit that when trials come into my life, I don't always respond that well. Now, I know that doesn't happen to you, but that definitely happens to me. I would love to be able to say that every time a trial has come into my life, I have said with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I wish I had that same response every time. Sometimes I do say it, but then the trial lingers. It's prolonged and it's harder to keep saying that. And uh, if during any of my trials or tribulations I have hurt you or offended you, I want to apologize this morning. I am truly sorry. I have no excuse. As we experience trials in our life, there are verses just like this one in Romans chapter 8 that really are a great comfort to us, a great comfort to me as well. It says, and we know, and we know. In the context of this passage in Romans 8, Paul has been speaking to the believers about certain unalterable facts. First of all, he starts the chapter by telling us that we are no longer under God's condemnation. Uh, That's wonderful news, don't you think? If that was it, that's fantastic. 
we are no longer condemned uh, because of our sin. God has forgiven us all of our sins. We are no longer living under God's condemnation. Why? Because we are believers. He also goes on to say that we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We belong to Him. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on to say that we are sons of God, having really having been born into the family of God, and we have a new intimacy with God that we did not have before, That whereby we call Him Abba, Father, like a little child that says Dada. One of the first... In fact, growing with seven children growing up, I was always in a race with... Krista, to have the children say Dada first before they said Mama. And I succeeded, I think, for most of them. So, But that, that's that expression, and it's, one, it's often the very first word a child says, Dada or Mama. But we can say that of our father, Abba. He goes on to say that just as children inherit treasures from their parents because they are heirs, So we are heirs of God, and we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And as Paul reaches a crescendo, and he's telling us about all of these wonderful things that are ours because we are Christ's, and he's reaching this crescendo. A crescendo in music is the high point. It reaches kind of a climax. And then he interjects what seems like a sour note in all of this. It's a minor key here. And it doesn't seem to fit in a way. The the note that he sounds out is this phrase, if indeed we suffer with him. You go, Paul, why do you say that? And here Paul explains that the Christian life, that we as believers, even though we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we are gods, we are Christ's, we have uh, all of these blessings, yet... We, we, we are not exempt from suffering. In fact, he later wrote to Timothy, and he said this, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's part of the package. It's part of the Christian life. And so there seems to be a conflict, at least in our minds, not in God's mind, but in our minds, between the position that we have as children of God and the reality of suffering and suffering as believers. Our suffering may be difficult and it may be painful, it may be hurtful, but that does not mean that God is not unconcerned uh, or that God is unconcerned with our troubles. Paul says in verses 18 and 19 in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The future glory that is in store for us as believers is described this way in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal Weight of glory. Now, those words are written actually for our encouragement. I hope you know that. That the Lord is trying to teach us something here. Look, yes, you're going to go through trials. Yes, you will go through difficulties. Yes, you may be persecuted. Yes, you may have bad things happen to you. 
but in comparison to what is in store for you. And what you already have as believers, there's no comparison at all. Really, the light afflictions he talks about are a contrast to the eternal or the, the, the weight of glory that is in store for us. He talks about um, that which is but for a moment. It's temporary compared to that which is eternal. And the heavy burdens that we now face will seem feather-like or featherweight in compared to the tons of blessing that we will yet receive. But we have to live in this life. We have to live day by day. And as I said, as believers, we're not exempt from difficulties and trials. And we see all around us heartache and suffering, wars, earthquakes this past week, tsunami, famines, disease, and, and they're sighing all around us. It's not just that people are sighing, but it seems, that just like Paul wrote in um, this passage, that, that all of creation is sighing and heaving. And uh, we see that, uh, in fact, he, he talks about it as being subjected to frustration as it groans and labors and birth pangs, and it's waiting for something. It's, it's this pain that, that is the precursor of something that is yet to come. And what is that that is coming? God is going to reveal who the believers are. He's going to re- reveal the sons of God. It wasn't creation's fault that we're in the mess that we're in. It wasn't the fault of the animals all around us that they're in the mess that they're in. and They suffer along with us. But it was because of the fall of man when sin entered into the world. And when Adam sinned, the result was that by God's decree, all of creation was affected and subjected to frustration that now exists. But one day this frustration will end in the purposes of God and the sons of God will be revealed at the coming of the Lord. And when that happens, (laughs) praise the Lord, all of this will be done away. And though we have this hope in us, it's still with expectation that we wait for that day to arrive. But brothers and sisters, if you're paying attention at all to what's happening around us, it has to be soon. Jesus is coming again. We wait for that day, but we groan in this life. And we suffer and we endure sorrow. And we are not exempt from trials in this life. God's plan allows for sorrow in our lives. God has a a much bigger plan than we care to think about at times. Sometimes we are so caught up in our own trials and our own difficulties and our own testing that we're going through that we forget to look that God has a much, much bigger plan at stake here, a much greater and eternal plan. And that plan includes you and it includes me. And it includes the entire creation because God's purpose is to reconcile all things to himself. And our salvation includes ultimately the freedom from the very presence of sin and an eternity with him free of pain and suffering and the salvation that includes uh, being free, as I said, from the very presence of sin. But for now, we groan in these bodies. In uh, the same passage in, in Romans 8, Paul says, and at times we don't even know how to pray. You ever been in a situation like that? You're so downcast. You're sort of, I don't even know how to pray. I don't know what to say. 
And you pray, and sometimes you don't even know what to pray. And it's so comforting to know that the Spirit of God intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, but they are according to the will of God. It says in the same passage that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Now, it doesn't say, if you notice, it doesn't say that the Spirit of God helps us when we are weak. It doesn't say that. It says that He helps us in our weaknesses. You know what that means? It's very different. It's not that we're strong and occasionally we become weak. He's saying, you're always weak, but He is strong. That's what it's saying. He's helping us in our weakness. We are perpetually weak. And He continuously comes to our aid. He carries, He is the one who carries our heavy load. And it's interesting that uh, Paul says elsewhere that we will not be tested beyond what we are able to endure. And we know, Paul says. How do we know? Because God's Word tells us so. We know that all things work together for good. I think another version says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. Let me say first this, that God is the cause of all good things. He is not the cause of evil. There is an outworking of evil uh, because of sin. And as I said earlier, the, Christ- the Christians are not immune to natural disasters, to sickness, to disease, and more. But we cannot lose fact, or we cannot lose sight of the fact that God is good and that all that He does is good and that every good and perfect gift comes from Him. But God can take even the evil and evil men and He can harness them for our good. It's amazing what He does. It is certain that no matter what comes our way, in this passage in Romans it says this, that we shall never be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That fact is certain. Our suffering may endure maybe for a chapter of our life, but the end of the book is written and it is certain. And God will take all of the pieces that seem to be so scattered in our life and so mixed up and He brings them or He works them together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Remember Job and the end intended by the Lord. Remember Joseph and the suffering that he went through and the evil of his brothers. And he could say at the end of his life, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive as it is this day. Remember God's work in Esther's life. Remember the outcome of David and Saul. And now we want to take a look at uh, our brother Stephen, the first martyr of the church. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 6. Appreciated Michael's rendition of uh, First Thessalonians. I didn't have the heart to tell him that we have the longest chapter in Acts to cover today. <laughs> no, I loved it. We're going to condense it into a, a few sentences. So the first uh, time that we see Stephen is here in Acts chapter six, and we're going to read the passage. It says, "Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying." There arose a complaint against the Hebrews 
by the Hellenists. So the Hebrews were Hebrew-speaking um, uh, widows, actually, and the Hellenists were Greek speakers. So that's the distinction there, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve, that's the disciples, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Prominus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So one of the first problems that the early church faced was a grievance. Uh, as this new um, community began to grow, it experienced growing pains. Uh, the church began to take on the responsibility of caring for the widows among them. And uh, it's something that we should all be concerned about, caring for widows, caring for orphans, caring for the poor, caring for the needy. But at this time, as I said, there were widows who were Hebrew speakers and widows who were Greek speakers. And the first division in the church surfaced over care for the widows. The Greek-speaking group felt that there was discrimination amongst them and that the Hebrew-speaking widows were getting more of the uh, distribution. And so they, they had kind of a community pot where either food or money was given uh, to care for the, the widows. And they kind of looked over at the uh, Hebrew-speaking widows and said, well, wait a minute, it's not fair. It's not right. How come they're getting more than me? This isn't right. And it began to create tension and um, what appeared to be discrimination. The apostles acted quickly to overcome uh, what seemed like inequality or favoritism. And so they asked the congregation, they asked the people to select seven men that would meet certain qualifications. The qualifications were that first they had to be of good reputation, they had to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and they had to be filled with wisdom. These qualifications were essential uh, qualifications for those who would, and the term that is used here is deacon the tables, okay? And it's a verb there. So it, in other words, the idea is that they were serving the tables, um, serving the, the needs of the, of the people. Now, later, as Paul began to write to uh, various churches that he had planted, he listed for us qualifications of elders and qualifications of deacons. So if you turn over to 1 Timothy 3, verses 8, or starting at verse 8, uh, we see the qualifications of deacons here. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 3, 8, it says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing 
and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't often do this, but I just want to say this publicly. I, I want to personally thank the deacons of Calvary Bible Chapel for the work that they do in our midst. And uh, we, we take it for granted, but we applauded Tom for his birthday today. I would applaud the deacons for their work too. Okay. I praise the Lord for the deacons that we have in the assembly who serve us and serve ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in their work. But our remarks are focused on Stephen. He met these qualifications. And so it tells us a lot about the character of the man. He's a man who was devoted to the Lord, loved the Lord, and served him. And these qualifications should challenge all of us. These qualifications should, uh, should fit all of us, but they must uh, be possessed by the deacons. As a result of the work of the deacons, the early church grew. A split was averted, and uh, Stephen was among the group of deacons who ended discrimination in the church and made sure that the widows were well cared for. Well, Stephen was busy with deacon work, but he also had spiritual gifts that God had given to him that he exercised um, outside of the church, it it appears. It says in in Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Syrians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And so God obviously gave him not only some sign gifts, he was a man of faith, but he was also a man that was quite capable in the word of God. And we see that actually in chapter 7. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not speak, does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. So Stephen, full of faith, exercising his spiritual gifts, spoke to these people. And as he served the Lord, he became the target of persecution. And brothers and sisters, if you're going to serve the Lord, you will be, you will face opposition. You will face persecution. It comes with the territory. Jesus said that. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But even if you are persecuted for your service for the Lord, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So he's hauled into the court of the Sanhedrin, a religious council of 71 men, And he's falsely accused of blasphemy. 
Now, we don't have time to go through all 60 verses, so I, I'll put your mind at ease there. But uh, in the 60 verses, the charges are four, really. One, he spoke blasphemy against Moses. Two, he spoke blasphemy against God. Three, he spoke blasphemy against the holy place, the temple. And four, he spoke blasphemy against the law. Now, Stephen does not answer the four charges as a legal defense. That's not his purpose here. That's not why he answers them. But he rather, he touches on issues that demonstrate that God has an overall purpose and plan for the salvation of mankind, and it does not fit with their preconceived ideas. And that's really the defense that he takes here. In light of this theme that plays out over 60 verses, we need to be sure that as we listen to how he responds to this, that we aren't like the people that he's talking to and resist God's um, plan in our lives as they did in theirs. So we're going to touch on a couple of the highlights. Man sinned. Man sinned in the Garden of Eden. And God began to work um, in rec- to reconcile mankind to himself. It's part of God's plan, was to bring men back to himself. But he's working with all of mankind. So all of the descendants of Adam and Eve, he is working with them, trying to reconcile them to himself. But God changed his plan. No, he didn't. Okay? God had this plan all along, even before the creation of the world. But from the human standpoint, it looks like God changed his plan. And he began, instead of what seemed like he was working with the whole human race, he decided to work with one part. In fact, one man, Abraham. And so he, he by uh, sovereign election, he uh, chose Abraham, called him out of Mesopotamia to the land of promise. And although it was God's purpose to give the land to him, Abraham never received it. He never possessed it. And the highlights of um, Stephen's message is this. God then raised up descendants after Abraham. And although God appointed Joseph, we're going to skip through a bunch of them, appointed Joseph... When Joseph revealed himself to his brothers the first time, and this is what I want want you to get get from his message here. When Joseph revealed himself to his brothers the first time, what did they do? They rejected him. They hated him. They were envious of him. They sold him into slavery, for they refused to see God's plan, even though Joseph made it clear what the plan was by revealing his dreams to them. the dreams that God had given him. And yet, we have to see that God caused all things to work together for good. It was evil that Joseph experienced. It was evil for his brothers to put him in the pit, to leave him to die. It was evil for them to haul him out and sell him to uh, traders that were going to Egypt. It was evil that he was sold into slavery. It was evil that the woman who was Potiphar's wife accused him of. It was evil that he had to sit and and languish in prison. All of these things were evil things that happened to him. And yet, 
God caused all of these evil things to work together for good, not only in Joseph's life, but in the lives of the very ones that hated him, his brothers. And so this is what Stephen is saying to them. Look, the first time Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, they hated him, they despised him. But when they saw Joseph in his glory, ah, that was different. They recognized who he was. And Joseph could say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to save, as it were, many people alive, as it is this day. God was working behind the scenes, causing all things to work together for good. God has a plan. And he's not thrown by events that are evil or by cataclysms, by tsunamis or by earthquakes or anything like that. It's all part of God's overarching plan. He is working. Uh, he is working. Then a greater trial came to all of Israel in Egypt when a, a pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph. And uh, the plan, God's plan allowed for a wicked pharaoh to rise and that that wicked pharaoh would hold them in bondage in Egypt. And God would display his glory and power over the strongest nation on earth. And although Pharaoh wickedly killed many innocent uh, children, God spared one. And he brought him into Pharaoh's household and was raised there in Pharaoh's court. And God raised up Moses to the point until when he was 40 years old, he, began, he went out to his brethren. And he revealed himself as their deliverer because he killed one of the Egyptians, if you remember. He was really saying, I am the deliverer that God has raised up to lead you out. And they did not recognize him. They rejected him. Moses said, or Stephen says in his sermon here, verse 25, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And when he went out the next day, his own brethren rejected him. And Moses fled out to the wilderness for 40 years and the people suffered. But again, God was working behind the scenes and prepared Moses to deliver the people. And when Moses revealed himself the first, when he revealed himself the first time, he was rejected. But when he was revealed the second time, he was received. And they followed him. And they went out with him. Then Moses, verse 35 of chapter 7, Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the, is the one God, I'm sorry, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And of course he was referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you, if you get the sense of what Stephen is saying here is this. Look, it happened in Joseph's life. It happened in Moses' life where the first time they were rejected. God has sent a prophet who is greater than Moses. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've rejected him too. The first time. But he is coming back. I mean, you just have to understand that's what he's saying here. He is coming back, and he is coming back a second time. And when he reveals himself the second time, they will look on him, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. They will recognize who Jesus is the second time. But at first, they rejected him. And Stephen was basically saying, look, it's not me rejecting God. It's not me 
turning aside uh, God or his plans. But it's the rulers of Israel who rejected the Lord, just as their fathers had rejected the prophets uh, before him. They had rejected the Lord in the wilderness. They rejected the law by making a golden calf. They rejected God by worshiping Moloch and other gods. And he goes on and on describing this to them. And he finally says to this, this to them, verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I I want to stop there for a second. It's very touching to me. We read in the scripture that when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. But that's not what it says here. It says he saw him standing. (laughs) You know, it's, it's... doesn't say why, but you have to understand that he's about to be murdered. He's about to be received into God's presence. And the Lord Jesus stands to receive him. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus. Did you catch that? As he was calling on God and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then they knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was like, if you want to talk about character studies, here's the character study. Stephen was like the Lord Jesus Christ in in that sense. He followed him even to death, and he prayed the same way the Lord prayed from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Can I ask you, can I ask me, what is the worst trial that you've ever been through? The worst. The very worst. I have never had to face even a death threat in my preaching. I have never been stoned. I have never gone on trial for my preaching. I've never faced a test, a trial like this. And you think, why would the Lord allow such a godly man to suffer and die? Why? Well, I can't claim to know everything that God is doing here because I don't. But I do know this, and we know this, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I think it might have been Rick who said, um, I I wasn't here for the sermon, but I heard a bit of it on uh, a CD, something like, wouldn't it be great to know your future? And then he proceeded to tell us how it wouldn't be so great after all. Wouldn't it be great to see the end of a trial and what God's purpose is in, not the trial itself, I don't even want to go there, 
But the end of the trial, what God is actually doing here. You know, we have that opportunity this morning with this trial, with this test that Stephen went through. He didn't see the end of it. He went right to heaven. That was great. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't want to be unsympathetic to what happened to Stephen. What he went through as a trial, I may never know. Probably will never know. But you know, he got an early ticket to heaven. There's not much downside to that. Okay? And I'm not belittling what happened here. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. He got to go to heaven early. He got to go to heaven, well, on time, obviously. But I, I look at it and I think, okay, if it's true, that verse in Romans, that God causes all things to work together for good, what's the good that came out of this? I mean, really, what is the good that came out of a man lying there in a heap uh, having been stoned to death. Well, let me ask you a question. Why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? You say, well, I, I'm a believer in the Lord and I want to have fellowship with other believers. Okay. And who led you to the Lord? And Eric looks over at Rick and says, well, that guy right over there. He's the one who led me to the Lord. And I say to Rick, well, who led you to the Lord? He says, well, you know, it, it happened as a result of, you know, me having a Bible. And as I read through the Bible, I saw my sin. And who put together an English Bible? And who uh, led the person who wrote that Bible to the Lord? And I can go back in all of your lives and you can start tracing way back to who led you to the Lord and who led them to the Lord and who led them to the Lord. And you end up before the country existed, before there was an United States of America. And you have people back in Europe who preached the gospel and many who, uh, um, of whom were martyred because of their faith. The fact that we have an English Bible today has to do with martyrs' blood that was poured out on our behalf. And who led them to the Lord? And we start tracing the story back and we start looking at, at how the gospel spread throughout Europe and we come to this same guy who's standing here with a heap of clothes at his feet named Saul who later became the Apostle Paul. And that Apostle Paul, whose books Rick probably read in order to come to know him, came to know the Lord. And that same man stood and watched as they killed Stephen. Why are you here this morning? Think of missionaries who were sent out from countries uh, or two countries uh, from Europe. It was through the Apostle Paul that the gospel went out to, uh, to Europe and other believers too, of course. But why did Paul go out to preach in Asia Minor and to Europe? Well, it was because the Holy Spirit of God sent him from a church in Antioch, which was one of the early churches that uh, was actually a, a very strong missionary sending church. And it was Barnabas who brought Paul to that church in Antioch. And that church in Antioch actually came as a result of, um, well, let's take a look. Um, Take a look at uh, Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. Now those who were scattered... After the persecution that arose over 
Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. There it is. Preaching the word to no one but the Jews only, but some of them who were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, um, so now we have African uh, countries as well, who came when they had come, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greek speakers, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of the things came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Then he came and had seen the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them with all, uh, encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue in the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And how did the church at Antioch begin? It was as a result of persecution that resulted from Stephen's stoning. And why was Stephen stoned? It was because of the testimony that Stephen gave to the Jewish leaders of his time. And so what seemed like a terrible event, and it was, don't get me wrong, it was a terrible event. It was, a, it was an evil and a wicked thing that they did. And yet God harnessed that for his glory and for our good in 2011. And so we are very directly connected with this story in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Our salvation ultimately came as a result of God working all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. You are here this morning because of the persecution that arose (laughs) over Stephen and his martyrdom. Let's pray. Lord, we look at the fact that you are sovereign, that you are great, that you are good, and that you take even the evil and the wicked things that men do and you cause them to turn for good to for us who love you and are the called according to your purposes. Lord, we can't even imagine the things that you have done in our lives already. And Lord, as we suffer persecution or trials or difficulties or temptation in our life, Lord, help us to see clearly. Uh, give us wisdom, Lord, to understand that you are at work, that you are clearly at work for our good and not for evil. And Lord, we pray that we might be at peace and have comfort and know clearly that you are at work causing all of these things to work together for our good. Lord, we want to worship you and praise you that you would take an event like this and cause it ultimately to result in us hearing the gospel and our salvation. Lord, to God be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.